I believe that if we are honest with ourselves, that the most fascinating problem in the world is who am I? Welcome to Behind the Mind. Join Meredith Krenmar as she chats one-on-one with intriguing, inspirational and imaginative people from Australia and across the globe. In this series of candid interviews, she seeks to discover the zigzagging journeys, pivotal events, daring risks and momentous moments that fundamentally helped form the way they think and work today. Today, I am joined by Jen Byrne. She's Irish. She's full of energy, uh, smart as a whip. She's a leading woman in the world of technology. Welcome to Behind the Mind. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. What a lovely intro. (laughs) Well, you are all of those things and many more. So I want to talk about a pivotal event in your life. So you're obviously an Irish, an Irish gal Mm -hmm. living in Sydney, not in Coogee though. no. Not in Coogee, not in Randwick, in Bondi. So, you know, I'm still on the list. It's a place people will assume I've lived in. So you were working in London. How did you end up in Oz? It kind of stems back to, so I'm obviously Irish, worked in London prior to moving to Australia. Whilst in London, I was working for a fantastic telco company. During that time, I realized that I still had the gras, as we say, so the love in Irish, the gras for travel. And I took a sabbatical. I was lucky enough to be given the ability to take three months off. And I used that time to go travel. During that time, I thought that would nip it in the bud. I wouldn't want to go see anywhere else in the world and then I've done all my exploring. But no. What happened was I came back and was like, geez, there's a lot to see in the world. I need to go uh, further afield. So that led on to me landing down under and I'd never been to Australia. And originally I was looking at Singapore, tax benefits, of course, but also the fact that it was like a hope to travel. But essentially what brought me to Australia was the fact that I already had friends living here. For me, family and friends are a core and integral part of everything I do and being able to come to Australia and have that kind of mini family on the ground when I landed and have them come and collect me from the airport and whatnot was really special. So that's kind of how I ended up in Australia. But obviously the actual reason why I got like that led me here was that bug that I've had always had for travel, for culture, for experiencing new things. So here I am five and a half years later. So it was a bit of a risk though. Bit of a risk though, you know, you had quite a high flying job in London, you know, like you were working for a big telco kind of thing. You have a sabbatical, you come in. I know the the feeling of landing in a country kind of thing. And was that refreshing, empowering? How, how did that yeah. feel for you when you're kind of back to like square one? Yeah, it's scary. So going back to the sabbatical, I think the real kind of amazing thing about that was I still had the comfort of knowing I could return to a job, but it gave me a lot of kind of time to think about what I wanted to do, where I wanted to be and how I wanted to grow and kind of what did my kind of long-term path look like. And essentially that gave me the confidence to go to Australia and like to make that move myself. And luckily I ended up having a friend that moved with me, but I essentially was going to do it on my own. I think being able to just having that time out during the sabbatical to really analyze why was it that I wanted to travel and kind of what was, what that was about. And I think it was that experience where I felt like that would give me more from life. There's something about it. It gives you a new perspective when you're about and like wandering the world, as they say. So I think that influenced my decision to come here and give me the confidence to make that leap. Did you feel scary though? A hundred percent. I mean, I speak to so many 
people, particularly young people, they're like, oh, I'd love to go traveling. I'm like, we'll just do it then. The only way to do it is to sort of work backwards on it. But there is a vulnerability, I think. I don't know if it's something that you felt that you were like, I've had this great job and things like that. Am I going to be able to do that again? Or did you always have that confidence that it was going to work out when you got to Australia? How did you feel at that time? Not necessarily, but more I had a thought that I never wanted to present myself or kind of my circumstance because I didn't do the things I wanted to do. So having taken that leap of faith feels really difficult at the time. So for anyone that is listening and is considering that, do take a leap of faith because you're always going to better yourself from doing that. There's a reason why you have that gut feel and desire and drive to make that kind of decision. So that kind of led me to making my decision. I think, yes, there's you remove that comfort blanket of having a, a job that you can, you're removing yourself from that area, but like it allows you to decide on what's the path you want to take? Like, were you in the right role? Is it actually the right path for me, whether it's an industry or the specific area that you're working in? I think that's been fantastic. And I just think that it's the resentment piece. I don't want to ever regret anything when I'm making any decisions. I think that's the driving force. So I think for anyone thinking, take a leap of faith. But I guess you haven't always been super decisive on things. You know, you've had a few zigzags when you were studying and things like that. Tell me about that whole journey that you went through. It's quite funny. I grew up watching Ali McBeal, Law and Order, anything with a solicitor in it, Legally Blonde, a lawyer. And I always thought that was the path I was going to take. In Ireland, we have a CAO process. So it's like where you put forward like the university degrees, the intake you want to be taking into post your exams when you're 18, which I think is hysterical. I still find it just hysterical that you're making a decision about potentially your whole life. Actually, I was 17 at the time and I was going forward and back between business and law or commerce and French because I liked French and I thought it'd be nice to go to France for a while. Again, there you go. There's like the start, the bubbling up of that travel bug, that inner need um, and desire to like travel. Anyway, long story short, I had business and law down for months and then last minute at five minutes and I changed to commerce and French. Fantastic. Started my little career. My Sorry, my time in university studying commerce and French. Halfway through the year, I was like, this is not all that's cracked up to be. Like, I like speaking French. I like the enjoyment of having a conversation. I didn't like studying books, which by the way, I would go to the bookstore and we'd be studying like French novels. I would buy the novel in English. I would read it in English, find the corresponding page and quote from the French novel to then write my essays. Obviously, very quickly, I realized this ain't for me and switched back to business and law. Hilariously then, fast forward to year probably three or four, whilst I was doing that, I realized, oh, I don't know if this profession is for me either. I don't feel like my energy (laughs) would be well suited to probably, to be honest, like an office-based role, desk-based role where I'm reading docs and kind of and whatnot or whatever I thought law would look like. And then I zigzagged out of that. I completed that degree just before I was going down the path of studying to be a solicitor. Very much, this is the right road. My parents hadn't gone to university, so I always had this kind of desire to exceed on to make them proud. And I felt like being a lawyer was a real kind of like, you know, top notch. Status maybe? Yeah, yeah, there's a status attached to it. But anyway, so I then just realized, what am I doing? Like I'm going to invest all this time, energy and money into something where I don't, I already feel that it may not be the right path for me. So what I had realized is I really enjoyed psychology and marketing subjects. I had gotten high grades in that. So I looked into what steps I could take with that. And I ended up completing a master's in marketing practice in Smurfit back in Dublin, which was 
incredible. The best decision I made, not only because I love the course and I still speak so fondly of it today because you kind of, it's very different to any normal masters. You actually work a nine to five job and you go into, it's quite funny. So when you go into the university, everyone else is in their normal clothes heading off to their lectures. You're in full suited and booted going to like your mini office. So we work as a marketing agency for a year whilst we're also doing kind of our thesis, etc. A very winding way to figure out where I needed and wanted to get to. And luckily, I'm still in marketing and that has worked out for me. I think my learning there is just you need to follow, again, that gut feel. You need to follow your passions and kind of take that leap of faith and make those decisions. And yeah, I ended up being six years in university. Great crack. But some people would look at that and be like, oh my God, you just want to do your three years and get out or your four years and get out. Life's for living. There's we plenty of time. Make sure you, for me, it was like approaching in the right way that like by the end of it, I came out of that with the experience that I wanted and needed and got me the role. Like I got a fantastic role with a, in, on a graduate program thereafter. And I've, I've been so happy in my career. And I'm, I, believe that is what's allowed me to kind of excel and grow in my roles over time. It seems that you have in life these, like you have the ability to have reflection points. Have you always been like that? God, great question. Probably. I feel like I have, I have moments. I am jealous of people who goal their lives. So have goals that they work toward. I don't necessarily do that. I shy away from it because I don't want to let myself down. But I do kind of reflect at moments and kind of reassess and kind of assess is this where I wanted to be? Because, you, you know, you're naturally a kind of goal, but like in my mind versus it being on paper, let's say, and kind of actively pursuing things. That's somewhat changed over the course of my life. But I think, yes, you're correct. Like I take times to assess where I'm at and kind of assure, ensure it feels like I'm on the right path and I'm content and happy with the way things are going. I love that because I'll let you in on a thing. I'm not really a goal. People would probably see me from the outside and be like, oh, I don't have my goals laminated on a shower. I start them. I do achieve lots, but I think that it has to feel what's right for you. And I think being instinctive and being able to listen to really what's going on. And how was it when your friends were graduating around you though? Or how did that feel? You know what? It's really interesting. I, again, I've grown up, we have a group of 14 best mates back home in Ireland, like big group of gals. It was difficult at time, mainly because they started being able to grow and they had money in their pocket because they were getting jobs and I was still studying. But over the course of time, a number of us have gone back and they've re-educated. Like one friend was a radiotherapist. She's now a doctor. We've all kind of changed in some way, changed kind of direction. Not all of us, sorry, a proportion of us. So I don't know if there's something instilled in all of us that would kind of are rubs off on one another. But yeah, like I think going back to that time when people were graduating, getting into the roles and I was still studying, there was a level of kind of jealousy at the freedom that they had. Like, again, there was a monetary aspect. That's a huge part when you, yeah. you, you leave university. But at the same time, I did think I'd made the right decision. I knew that it was only an extra year, it being an extra two years of time. And I, that's another thing I'm, I do. I've really learned, especially with, you know, making decisions to jump across the pond to Australia and whatnot, or like take a sabbatical. People think three months, six months, a year is such a long length of time. No, it's not. It really isn't. And it goes by in, in the snap of a finger. So whether you're in it or it's somebody you've left it, you don't get left behind, I think, essentially. And I kind of, I've learned that now. Yeah, because you're in the world of tech now and that's fast paced. And I think it takes guts to, you know, honour honor your gut yeah. as well and be like, actually, what's my path? You know, listening to yourself yeah. as well. And it yeah. seems that that's been, you know, a really successful thing for you. I want to talk about a momentous moment for you, which Jen did a half marathon 
And half marathon? Ironman. Half Ironman. Mm. You also did a half marathon as part of a half Ironman. <laughs> Have you always been a sporty person? No, no. It's quite funny. So my brother has all the sporty genes, or so I thought. He is a rugby player. So we've always kind of looked at Tiger and been like, you're great. Off you go there now and keep doing the sports things. The rest of us will just sit on the couch and watch you on the telly. When I came to Australia, obviously living, I decided I wanted to live by the beach, live in the city. That, the beautiful weather, it obviously really drives you to spend as much time outdoors as possible, especially come from a country where you spend most of your time in the pub or at home. I used to live with a guy and he'd go out and do a run up and down the Bondi promenade. So it's like a kilometre one way. And I, he'd come in and be like, you've done five or ten. I'm like, jeez, thoughts of doing that. And then I just set myself this little mini challenge of like, I'm going to try and run the Bondi promenade. So I would literally have to stop and start the whole way across that one kilometre stretch. Like we wouldn't be talking about being able to do it one way. And just over time, I kind of really enjoyed how I felt kind of that work can take up, suck up a lot of your time. And then being able to kind of leave that, I think sometimes I felt I needed a reason. So like a social event or something to leave. And exercise became that for me then. So like I wanted to go for my run and kind of depart from whatever I was doing. I think because I work in marketing creatively, it gets the juices flowing when you have that time away from your desk. So over time, that then just built up into more running. And then over COVID, me and my friend, for whatever funny and silly reason, got wind that my friends were making their own fake triathlon. We said, oh, sure, we'll train. Sure, that, that'll be grand. We bought two bikes, the two of us. I'll never forget the day we we went out for to cycle. We didn't know how to change the gears and bike. It was absolutely mortifying. So anyway, long story short, that happened. I had a absolute fear of the ocean. So she kind of helped me train in Iceberg's pool. I don't really know over the past like couple of years since then, I obviously loved it. We just got such a high out of participating in that little fun triathlon and then went into actual competitive ones and gave them a go. And then the more and more I kind of did it, the more I felt I was getting from it socially. So meeting people, but equally my mental health. I've had some like ups and downs in being in Australia, being away from home and kind of what happens in your own personal life and whatnot. And that's been kind of my outlet, as I said, coming from that realization of like going out to the Bondi prom and just doing those couple of kilometers and being able to take a a break from work. It's also essentially just allowed me to kind of find that inner meditative state that I nearly go into with exercise. So yeah. And then somehow that wound me up doing a half Ironman because the people I surround myself over time have become more quite competitive and have competed in those areas and have really kind of encouraged me to do it. So pretty proud. It was a great day. I smiled the whole way through. So I really loved Did it. Did you really? Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. Ocean swimming. I do it now. I do it every Friday with a group with a gang that also, again, helped me kind of overcome and face, overcome those fears that I had around kind of the ocean and the sharks in Australia. That wasn't my favourite part of the actual half iron But it was the first part. So at but least you, you got to put that behind you. And I, but the, the best part was the run and being able to run past friends and have people shouting for you or whatnot. And it just, it, it, it's, it's a great moment. It's a fantastically organised event. And if anyone again, like is into anything of that sort, I would highly recommend. Albeit, like, it takes a lot out of you. <laughs> I think it's interesting that you talk about that you learned to do the ocean swimming to overcome it. You also, your degree, I'm prepared to learn. It's clear that you're prepared to put in the work, even if you don't feel confident with something. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think it's been instilled in me growing up, like by my parents, you know, that kind of like anything is possible and kind of they've supported us. And when I say us, I mean, my, my siblings, I come from a family of four. So I'm one of four kids that anything is possible. And they kind of see themselves as like they succeed in their own rights. I think they're greatly successful, but they always thought they could 
probably deep down, I think there's like this a sense of maybe could have achieved more. And I think for me, it's kind of like, well, how can I aspire to do more and be more? I think it, my driving force is, sounds pretty cliche, but making my parents proud. Like it is, it's very important to me because of the amount of work that they've put in. So yeah, that learning, I think, comes from that world of, okay, well, how can I better myself? Because I've been brought up in this world of like, you can be whatever you want to be. So kind of relate everything back. And they gave you that platform, I think, yeah. you know, I'm, I feel that way about my parents too, that I'm yeah. one of four too. And it's a weird sort of internalized pressure, I think. So I don't think I certainly, my, my personal experience, I don't think they had high expectations of me, but I did, I was intrinsically aware of that, all the opportunities that I had, they probably didn't have them in the same way. And that's the same thing with travel and things like that, you know? And And you want to make the most of the opportunities because it wasn't, it may not have been there for them. So therefore you're like, well, I want to live it out because then I didn't turn something down that they would never have turned down. Just back to the learning point, it's making me, I'm I'm smiling because it really was a step by them. I was in drama, piano, violin, singing, like everything and anything. Like we joke because we have like between me and my siblings, I think we can play like 11 instruments oh like with we're the traveling band. But the whole, again, the whole, it was instilled in us that you can learn and learn anything. Unfortunately, I still, I don't really play the piano anymore, but you know, it's more the attitude. You could get lessons again. You yeah. could get lessons again. I got some lessons again a couple of years ago. And what was fascinating <laughs> was it's so in your subconscious. You're mm-hmm. like, it's like this world of your brain that opens up again yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. So yeah, I think, you know, you're such a student of life kind of thing. And that's not in a cliched way, but I think that people see success for others. And I don't think they necessarily realize that, you know, you seemingly sort of just break it down into bite-sized chunks, like running the Bondi Promenade kind of thing. It's amazing to think that you have gone on to do a half marathon from that small start. That's how you define success. Like I kind of set that as a goal because I wanted to see if I could stay focused on something for a period of time and not be distracted because I also, you know, I can stay focused on these mini goals I set. There's also things I can just shy away from because I get a lot of imposter syndrome. Like it's constant being able to prove to myself now you can actually do that like if you put your mind to it you can achieve it so yeah it's nice nice to be up there alongside my brother as well you know give him a run for his money (laughs) (laughs) yeah imposter syndrome is crazy i mean i know it's not just women who have it but typically it seems to be something that i talk about with my women friends and colleagues a bit more i don't know why what's your theory on it I don't know. And I agree. A mentor, women and male, but predominantly women tend to reach out to women. I think, I don't know, it's maybe a comfort thing, but internally and externally at the company I work for. And it's the constant. It's like, oh, I don't think I'm ready for promotion. But why? Like I ask, why? What would be stopping you? There's no real need. They have the skill set. They have the experience. I also question the years of experience on a CV. They're capable. They demonstrate to me all the abilities and skill set that one would need and want for whatever role in particular that they're speaking about. But like, I don't know what drives imposter syndrome, but I think what I try to do with people that I mentor or engage with is flip it on its head. And I think also surrounding yourself with people who'll challenge you when you might demonstrate that level, that kind of imposter syndrome. Do you still get it? Absolutely. Had it coming in here. Like, why am I doing the podcast? Absolutely. All the time. And I do think it's got to do with, you know, being a female in the workforce does come with its own kind of 
difficulties, you're constantly obviously fighting to kind of have a voice at the table. I think it naturally comes for males. I'll argue that till the cows come home. There's a link between imposter syndrome and being a female in the workplace. I'm not, I can't tell you why for me, but it does exist. But what I do always question is like, well, why are you the person being invited to present on this topic? Or why are you sat in this meeting? Why there's a reason that I'm here and I have valuable things to share and to say and to debate or whatever it might be an opinion and backing yourself and kind of going back and kind of reminding yourself why you deserve to be at the table is really important. I think reinforcing that all the time really helps me. Also, if you don't have imposter syndrome, I feel like that helps me excel as well. Cause I'm like, yeah, boo, yeah, like, come on, bring it. <laughs> like, yeah. It can make me nervous at times, but then that's what gets me excited. I'm like, right, well, I know I'll overcome something in doing that. So again, so you have high, it's desire, yeah. there's high performance. What happens if you don't perform? You know, you've got high expectations on yourself. Yeah. How do you cope with setbacks? I think I'd lie if I say I wouldn't be disappointed at times when you don't like... You're not like, it's over. Yeah. Like it brush it. Yeah. I, I think it's weird if somebody said that, oh, it's grand, whatever, then I'm... Uh, Didn't really like, care. Yeah. Like questionable, right? I think with failure, oh, it's the cliche again, isn't it? Every failure, you've got learnings from it. Like I will always take time to kind of reflect in those moments. So if it's something at work or personal life or whatever it might be, if you have a fight with a friend or like any of those moments where like things don't go right for you, I always reflect on, okay, well, how can I do better next time? Or like, what's the learning there? I try not to beat myself up about it. It's more like, okay, that went wrong. That campaign wasn't that successful or whatever it might be, or that meeting didn't go that great, or I let this person down for X reason. How do I do better next time? I think if you break it down into those chunks, you'll see those learnings. You'll see ways in which you can kind of excel next time and you move on and you kind of, you get better. Totally. Yeah. It's hard though, you know, self-leadership. I think that, you know, you and I are both in leadership roles and what's your sort of style and think, how do you approach it? Because, you know, sometimes I still feel like I'm making it up. I think you're constantly learning. How do you approach leadership? Yeah. I think with leadership, I always find it so funny. People ask, what's that question? Right, like, oh, what's the one? How are you a great leader? I'm like, you're always learning as a leader. You can't define a great leader because there's so many different varieties of people that you lead. So you have to engage and figure out the best way to lead that person as well as the collective. I like to think I'm vulnerable. I'm open with my team so that I'm a person that they can engage with and kind of I have I have shit going on in my life too. And like, you know, I can find days that work hard too. We use this whole language of empathy and kind of being an empathetic leader. And I think that's really important. I think it builds rapport. It's really important to me that I understand my team as individuals as much as kind of how they can help us achieve our commercial goals. So like being able to lead in that capacity and have that connection is really important for me. And I think that's how I get enjoyment from my job. And I hope that they do too, because you go to work and you feel like you're working with friends, not employees. Totally. I think it makes it way, way more rewarding. You know, my observation talking to you is that you have a high degree of self-leadership. Not only do you set high standards of yourself, you have those reflection points to be able to lead. And I think leadership to me starts with yourself kind of thing. And you certainly role model that. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I think, (laughs) I think just on the leadership thing, I think as well for me, the important, like it's, so important to support because I've been in those roles and we've talked about that imposter syndrome is helping them develop the skill sets and the confidence they need to progress. That's when I think I'm leading and at my best because you can get to a point with your career where, you know, I can do all the campaign creative and all those lovely things myself, you know, I'm just if we're, as an example for marketing, but like 
the passion where I get most from now is helping others succeed and exceed. Like that's the crux of kind of how I like to lead and kind of manage my people and kind of ensure that they can pass the hurdles that are put in front of them. The ones that might have taken me a little bit longer to pass and kind of that imposter syndrome would have set in. I would have said, oh, I can't take that leap. I can't go for that promotion. That wouldn't suit me or whatnot. I'm hopeful that I'm kind of handholding a bit to help them jump over those hurdles a bit more quickly than I may have. So I think, yeah, in leadership, I don't know what word we'd use to describe that, but that's also really important kind of I think it's a sponsor. Piece. Yeah. Have you had a sponsor in your life? It's more than a mentor, somebody who's opened doors for you. Not really. I've just had fantastic people. It's funny when people talk to me about mentorship, I struggle with having one mentor or one sponsor. I feel like over the course of my career to date, it's changed over time, depending on, you know, what my outlook was and where I was trying to get to. And a lot of them come with wherever I have been working. You naturally seek out and find people in there that kind of understand what you're going through. It's varied over the years. I think also my best sponsors are like my family and friends. Like they're the people that support me and give me the confidence and the drive to do the things where you know, otherwise I might tap out kind of saying, no, not for me. Again, going back to that, what I said at the start, like family and friends are integral. I think they're really important as your support network and whatever you do. Totally. And I think that I'm such a believer part of this podcast is that, you know, your work doesn't need to be the defining part of you because, you know, jobs will come and go, but you know, your friends, family and what you stand for. And I think that you're in a huge leadership position. And is it something that you ever struggle with that we all have the blur between work and you sort of talked about that, you know, the Bondo Promenade getting you to be able to get out of that, you know, how important is that for you to be carving out who Jen is? Yeah, I say it all the time time that you work to live, you don't live to work. It's really important. I think at times when things can be hectic at work or whatnot, but then, you know, you can see people are kind of at boiling point. You need to be able to tap out and take the time out. I think when I was in London, unfortunately, it was early in my career. I was on the hamster wheel. I thought it was normal to be up at six working and not clocking off until midnight or whatnot. I just thought that was my normal day. No wonder you need a sabbatical. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, like I've probably been aggressive there, but you know what I mean? Like you get up and you do your two hour commute, you do your days of work and then you come back and you're back on the laptop. Australia also have to say has a a better pace of life and work-life balance that naturally kind of has helped me adapt. I find I always think about this when I started in my role, my manager, who's the same manager today, we were sat in the office and it was quarter to five. She's like, I'm off to do yoga. And I was like, what? I was like, what? That was unbelievable. We're leaving a quarter to five to do yoga. And we're telling people we're going to do yoga. And the next day, somebody went off during lunch break to have a surf. I'm only like a couple of weeks into just being in Australia. So I was like, what is going on? What on earth? These are high flyer people. These individuals have like, are incredible achievers in their own right. So I knew it wasn't like, oh, this is some person that, you know, was never going to succeed or whatnot. And I think it just made me learn that you don't have to be at your desk working crazy hours, actually being able to manage like your work and your life and kind of having that time off in between is so imperative because of the, it's actually what allows you to have that energy and that kind of mental space to do the great things you do at work. So yeah, over time, I think that's really changed from like what I was like in London to what I'm like now. And now I'm a massive believer. We have like this blue sky thinking approach at work as well, where we take a couple of hours and the idea is there's no meetings, do what you want. Like that is your time to creatively think. So I might go out for my, run my half marathon because that's when I do my best thinking. And I feel no guilt for not being at my desk. And if someone rings or looks for me, I have no issue saying, hey, sorry, I was out for a run because 
I will be my at my best as a result of allowing myself that that time and that kind of break on my day. So yeah, I think it's really important to find the balance between the two and also instilling that in your working environment because we create the culture of like whatever businesses that we're working in. Don't wait for somebody else to create it. Create that culture yourself. You can be starts with you. Be the change. Be the change. Yeah. But it comes back to that whole point around self-leadership, I think. And you are the change and it's so refreshing. I know, you know, you work in tech. We know that being a woman in tech is hard. Like, you know, there's lots of industries where it's hard. And I think the fact that you're so candid about your journey, your ability to change, but also see the best in others and support them to achieve is just so refreshing. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, Jen. Thank you for having me. It's great. Thanks for listening to Behind the Mind. Subscribe if you'd like to hear more episodes. Connect with Meredith via email, behindthemind at becausexm.com.